todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Audrey Golden is an arts and culture writer and is also the station manager of Louder Than War Radio, where she's a DJ and presents the weekly show Breaking Glass that highlights women in music. Audrey's oral history book, I Thought I Heard You Speak, Women at Factory Records, is out now, and I just finished reading it, so I can't wait to find out more and share some of her stories with you. Hi, Audrey. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on such a major undertaking. <laughs> Your book, I thought, because you speak women at three records, is really a deep dive, um, not only into the women behind factory records, but also the label and the business itself. So I'm kind of wondering what attracted you to that project in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I really started getting interested in Factory as a fan of the music. So um, listening to Joy Division, listening to New Order in particular. Um, and then I started, you know, as I got a little more money and could buy records more and could buy pieces of ephemera, things like that. Um, I started noticing women's names on things that I had never heard before that didn't show up in a lot of the existing histories. And so I really started to think about who those women might be and why they had been excluded from a lot of the factory histories that were out there circulating. So that's really how I got interested in the project, coming to factory as a fan, but then, you know, thinking about the ways that different voices get excluded from different histories and wanting to kind of investigate that and excavate those stories. Yeah, yeah, you really did. And this, the title, I thought I heard you speak, it seems like it could have a couple of meanings, but uh, where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's a double entendre, at least. It's a line from the New Order song, Blue Monday. Um, so 
I thought, you know, I thought I was mistaken and I thought I heard you speak. So <laughs> it's the line for Blue Monday. But then it also, of course, is a double entendre and really speaks to, no pun intended, um, the way in which women's voices really have been sort of tamped down or sort of not been made part of the historical equations of factory. So it really, um, you know, I think lends itself to that uh did I hear you speak question? Um, <laughs> and that idea that um, that women's voices so often aren't, aren't included. Right. And also I, I learned some facts about Blue Monday that I didn't realize it was such a huge seller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that yeah. is very impressive. Yeah. And I mean, one of the really great things I think that my book does among a lot of great things I think it does, um, is to really showcase the way women, you know, made that happen in a lot of ways. Of course, mm -hmm. New Order, you know, made it happen by creating the song. But then I left when I was talking to Jillian Gilbert and she talked about how she and Steve Morris were really responsible for, you know, putting together that song, for really building that song on new technology. And the moment where she describes sort of um, patterning together all of these different synth instructions and having all these things laid out um, and, you know, learning, learning the machine in order to make that song, you realize, okay, if Jillian hadn't been there, right, the song might not have existed. So that's the first thing wouldn't have existed. And then, I mean, the women in the office working behind the scenes to get it out there to deal with the kind of just madness of the Blue Monday craze. Um, Leslie Gilbert's story talking about how I think she says everything just went bonkers with Blue Monday. <laughs> um, and so that was really a moment where the office got really incredibly busy, where a lot of the women felt that factory records really became an important label in the scheme of things. And they handled, you know, they handled distribution, they handled overseas licensing, um, they did a whole bunch of other work behind the scenes. So I think that Blue Monday story, you know, in some ways is a kind of microcosm for the book itself. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It was uh, very entertaining and educational for me. Um, and you, in the book, you talk to a lot of people, but in the introduction, you also mentioned some people either their timing didn't align or they didn't respond to their request. And some even said, no, I'm not interested. So I'm kind of surprised that um, some would say no to helping piece together the whole picture of factory records. But um, in any case, aside from organizing all those interviewees, what was your biggest challenge in writing the book and putting it together? I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges was just figuring out, you know, who was important to the story and tracking them down because a lot of their names just aren't written down anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's not a matter of, you know, kind of delving into like a material archive or to certain stories that have been written down or exhibited and finding names for people to, con you know, people to contact, but it's, you know, trying to figure out who those names are to begin with, and then doing a lot of uh, really like private eye slash detective work <laughs> to try to find them. Um, so I started with a list of maybe, you know, about two dozen women. And I thought that was a lot when I first started working on the book. I thought, 
this is, you know, this is definitely going to be, I think, enough to put together a book. And as I kept speaking with different women, I kept hearing more names that just don't appear anywhere, you know, and, you know, someone I was speaking with would say, have you talked to so-and-so, you know, she's really important to the story for this reason, or have you talked with so-and-so, you know, she did X, Y, or Z thing, or they did X, Y, or Z thing. And so I, you know, of course, kept a notepad next to me as I was doing interviews and jotted down every name that I came across, uh, And then trying to find a lot of these people is just, I mean, it's really difficult because a lot of them aren't in the public. A lot of their surnames have changed. A lot of them got married and changed their surnames. Oh, yeah. And so so it was, I mean, it was a lot of research. My academic background and my experience doing research definitely paid off (laughs) in in that regard. um, I was able to track down a lot of the women on my list, although there were some I wasn't able to track down, um, not for want of trying. (laughs) And, uh, you know, like I say in that author's note, I, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of names of women who I just don't even know who are important to the story, but who, you know, it just happened that somebody didn't mention and I, you know, their name isn't written anywhere. So I, I didn't even know to contact them. I'm sure that's a lot of people. I've already heard from a couple of women on Twitter um, who said, oh, I worked at, you know, I worked at the Hacienda from this year to this year. And I've said, oh, I obviously would have, you know, tried to speak with you for the book, um, but I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. Amazing um, cross-section of people that you interview, including, which I thought was very interesting, approach to some of the uh, female musicians. The female musicians on Factory really had a lot of uh, different experiences and really worked in, you know, a lot of different kinds of musical forms and I don't want to say genres because it's not really a genre but um so caught a lot of different musical modes I guess mm-hmm. um and they come from really different you know places some from Manchester some you know from London some from the Netherlands Ghani Rietveld uh musicians from the United States uh so really you know widely varying experiences among the musicians too also the format that it's in the oral history format rather than writing prose for lack of a better word Uh, why did you choose that format it was really important to me that it be an oral history book um, because so many women's voices had been excluded uh, or marginalized within existing histories i really wanted to put together a book that made their voices kind of the center of the story And I didn't want to be mediating their voices through print. Obviously, I'm mediating in some form because I'm weaving, you know, their voices together. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't want my voice to be the framing device for their stories. I wanted their stories to stand on their own. Um, And the oral history format to me, I think, is a really kind of inherently democratic form. It doesn't um say that one voice is more important than another it allows voices to you know respond to one another it allows voices to kind of speak collectively in a book like this and it has this kind of inherent um sense of equality to it as well so yeah um well what is your process when it comes to doing all the research, the fact checking. And also I wonder if it's something like making a documentary where in some ways you gather all this information 
And then once you have it, the story shapes itself in the editing process, or if you already had an outline that you were going to follow. Yeah. Um, so with an oral history book, there's not a lot of fact checking per se that goes on because, you know, as you see in the book, different people have different memories and they mm -hmm. remember things differently. So I really wanted my book uh, to push back against those books that, you know, define themselves as definitive histories that say there is one history, there is one timeline, there's one experience um, that maybe can be fact checked uh, in some regard, right? There, there's right. this idea that things can be fact checked, but often things are based on experience or experiential knowledge. So fact checking actually becomes a matter of like speaking to different people and um, making clear how different experiences shape out stories in different ways. So I wasn't really doing fact checking in a traditional sense or like a journalistic sense, but rather I was um, thinking about how different women in the book uh, might have had experiences that were both similar to and distinct from one another and both similar to and distinct from the experiences of those who have been written about so much are, you know, before my book in the factory story. Um, and then I think it is, you know, kind of like making a documentary. Um, I've never made a do documentary film, but <laughs> um, I suspect a documentary filmmaker might think the same thing that it's great if, you know, you have a product that looks like the voices within it shaped it. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you put it together the right way, then it looks like um, it looks like, you know, your subjects have just done the shaping. But in fact, I think it's a lot of uh, really in-depth thinking about the types of questions to ask in order right. to get the type of information you want. Um, thinking about how to respond in the moment when you're interviewing someone, um, how to respond to you know, ethical issues that come up in the moment, how to respond to emotional moments, how to pivot from one topic to another, and then ultimately how to weave all of that information together in a way that tells some kind of cohesive narrative. And I think oral histories in that regard are really similar to documentary films because I think that's what documentary filmmakers are doing too. I think you know, they're working really hard behind the scenes to think about not just, you know, the questions that you might be asking in certain types of documentary form, but thinking about different images to shoot and how those are going to add to the story and then putting everything together in a way that looks to a reader or a viewer like it's seamless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there is a story arc. There's a, a first act, a second act, a third act, and that's, I think, is inherent to all forms of storytelling even in a book like yours where you know we have that arc yeah um well speaking of story arcs <laughs> I'm quite familiar <laughs> with those because I used to work as a film journalist and a critic and I covered the film 24 hour party people so uh -huh. first of all I'm wondering if you've seen it and what your thoughts are and um what are some other good sort of uh, companion pieces you can recommend that people watch or read after your book? Um, so yes, I've absolutely seen 24 hour party people. I've seen it many times. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> I, 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 I love the film. I think it's really entertaining. I, I think Michael Winterbottom's a really, uh, 
just phenomenal director. Um, I love a lot of the stuff he's made. I think Steve Coogan's hilarious. He's he is. Uh, yeah. he's one of my he's one of my favorites. Um, not just as Tony Wilson, but as Alan Partridge, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sort of secretly hoping on some of my book uh, book tour events in the UK that maybe someone could get Steve Coogan to show up dressed as Tony Wilson to get into <laughs> some kind of like 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 um, you know performed uh, argument with me over the book, but that way awesome. it didn't happen. <laughs> uh, in terms of things to recommend watching, I mean. There are obviously a lot of factory things out there. There are documentaries, um, there are fictional films. Uh, but you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I think none of those, you know, tell the story fully and incorporate the experiences and memories and really hard work, the labor of women. Um, so I think those are really, you know, missing something and Mm -hmm. really kind of marginalizing the work that women did at the label. So rather than recommending any of those, I thought I'd recommend some of the music videos that women worked on. Um, Right. Yeah. um, So uh, the Kalima music video for Smiling Hour, um, Kalima is a band uh, fronted by um, Anne Quigley. That was directed by Linda Dutton, who did a lot of shooting film at the Hacienda, was really important camera person. Um, Sandy McLeod directed the Miranda Stanton music video, Wheels Over Indian Trails, and Jillian uh, Gilbert of New Order was one of the producers of that song. Um, Carol Lamond, a uh, UK-based filmmaker, directed Rudy Collins' Win the World, and she was a really technically skilled filmmaker and did some really cool early interesting tech stuff with color in that film mm-hmm. in that um music video a lot of the new order music videos really put women at the center um laura israel was the editor on a bunch of them she edited blue monday 88 um she edited the new order music video for 1963 which gina birch from the raincoats directed uh, she also edited the Paula Grafe directed and Elizabeth Bailey produced Round and Round. Um, and then Amber Denker did computer graphics and Gretchen Bender co-directed on Bizarre Love Triangle. So those are all uh, women-centered music videos that people can check out. And then if people are on YouTube and want to learn more about some of the women in the book, um, the Manchester Digital Music Archive, a number of years ago, did some, they're short, but they're really interesting and great interviews with Manchester women in music, really trying to highlight women um, who have been excluded from sort of histories of Manchester and the music scene. And so there are um, a handful of women who were connected to Factory interviewed, but there are also a lot of other great Manchester-based women musicians whose stories you can check out there and Alison Surtees um, of the Manchester Digital Music Archive shot a lot of those and they're really great so I recommend those. Oh that's fantastic definitely. Um, So I'm wondering as uh, when you're writing and putting together your book did you listen to music? I know some authors want quiet others feel like they need to soak in the ambience of what they're writing about how about you Um, I definitely don't listen to music when I'm actually writing. Um, I really need, need quiet and like a really 
like mega organized space. Um, but I listen to music for inspiration all the time, sort of in between writing sessions and when I'm doing other non-writing based work on uh, projects I'm, you know, I'm doing. So when I was working on this book, I was obviously listening to a lot of the the factory bands oh, and the yeah. music from a lot of the women who I interviewed for the book. So I was obviously listening to New Order. I feel like that just goes without saying if, if you, if you <laughs> know anything about me or my, my love for that band. Um, but um, I was also listening to Quando Quango. I was listening to Meow. I was listening to Section 25. I was listening to The Wake. Um, I was listening to Miranda Stanton. Uh, I was listening to Kalima. So yeah, a lot of the, um, the bands uh, sort of fronted by or including really amazing women. Um, them. So what's coming up next from you? Um, I'm currently working on a book on the raincoats. So I'm extremely excited about that. Oh, wow. So when can we expect to see that? Not for a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing it now. And then um, I think it'll come out probably in early, very early 2026. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're doing your more deep diving here. I, I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Audrey, it's time for my standard closing question, and that is, what is your own rock and roll nightmare? I I have a <laughs> I have a rock and roll nightmare. Um, I have a lot of Nick Cave on the brain because I just went to see um, a Nick Cave solo show at the Beacon Theater, which was beautiful and moving and incredible. Um, and I don't normally think of Nick Cave as a nightmare I think of Nick Cave as the opposite of a nightmare but um, okay I'll make up something really briefly as a rock and roll nightmare um, okay I've accepted a writing fellowship this is fake right I've accepted a writing fellowship in rural Australia um, to work on this raincoats book I'm working on and I've already done a lot of the interviews I'm supposed to be getting some some you know quiet time to just to write, <laughs> um, maybe to play a little piano, uh, maybe to play a little ukulele. So I heard there's a piano in this, this rural, weird little house in the middle of nowhere. So I can play music, I can write. And I heard before I, you know, before I accepted the fellowship that um, it's a place where the birthday party stayed. And I get there and turns out Tracy Pugh has left a cowboy hat in the closet. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm excited. I think, oh, this is cool. Obviously put it on and somehow I conjure the demonic doppelgangers of the birthday party. <laughs> and these aren't mischievous devils like Voland from The Master and Margarita, but these are totally terrorizing alternate forms of the musicians these are their ids incarnate so i become terrified of the birthday party i can never listen to boys next door birthday party nick cave in the bad seeds ever again and i run screaming in terror from the house audrey you should be writing fiction <laughs> i love it <laughs> um so where's the best place for fans to find and follow you online? What's your preferred social? Um, I'm on Instagram and mm -hmm. I 
And then I have a website too. It's just my name with my middle initial. So it's AudreyJGolden.com. And you can also find my socials and contact information there too. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, Audrey. It was really great to speak with you and learn more about your process. And um, hopefully everyone will pick up I Thought I Heard You Speak Women at Factory Records. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And, you know, the book can be imported from the UK now, but it's officially out everywhere in the US January 2nd. So you'll be able to buy it from your local bookstore then if you're in the US. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.